0: Welcome to the Dig Ethics Podcast. My name is Seth Viegas, and it is a pleasure to share today's conversation with you. In this episode of the podcast, I interview Wesley Wildman. Wesley Wildman is a professor of philosophy, theology, and ethics. He is one of the founding faculty members of Boston University's new Faculty of Computing and Data Sciences. He also serves as the executive director and chairman of the board for the Center for the Mind and Culture. In this interview, I talked to Wesley about the history for the Center for Mind and Culture and about CMAX's unique approach to problems that could benefit from both humanities and scientific methods. The key questions for this episode are, how can we better educate researchers to tackle the complicated problems that we face today? Are there ways in which the university system itself may need to be adapted? This podcast would not have been possible without the help of the DigEthics team, Nicole Smith and Luis Salinas. The intro and outro track, Dreams, was composed by Benjamin Tissett through BenSouth.com. This episode has been cut and edited by Talia Smith. Now, I am pleased to present you with my interview with Dr. Wesley Wildman. So, hello, everyone. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Wesley Wildman. Wesley Wildman is not only the executive director and Chair of the board for the Center for Mind and Culture, but is also my advisor. So, someone I've worked with quite closely. So, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me
1: today. My pleasure to be with you, Seth. As a start to our conversation,
0: I was hoping to learn a little bit more about the Center for Mind and Culture. So, what is the Center for Mind and Culture? If you had to, had to talk to someone who is an alien, not, not someone who's in Australia. Right. Who's probably a lot more familiar with what the Center for Mind and Culture is than the average American. But if you're to talk to someone who didn't necessarily know about it, what is it? Why did you start it? How, How did you get this thing going?
1: Is it okay if I picture an Australian alien? Sure, sure. That would work. So I started the Center for Mind and Culture with Dr. Patrick McNamara. He's a neuroscientist at Boston University Medical School. And he and I had come across each other because of our existing publications and we decided that we wanted to work together. This was now 14 years ago or so. And he had a lab at the VA in Jamaica Plain. The Veterans Affairs Hospital has this giant building full of labs and he had one of them up on the ninth floor there. And that became the first home for the Center for Mining Culture. And we were working on various research projects there. And I've got to tell you, those early days were kind of heady. There's all sorts of energy and excitement and lots of people working on things. But the really critical moment for the two of us was when we we actually met in some strange little corner of the VA that I kept, I've been back looking for it and I've <laughs> not been able to find it. But we sat down in this area that looked like it had been used for storing furniture. and two of us sat in a booth opposite one another. And we talked about what it would be like to start an organization that allowed us to do research that was difficult to do and difficult to fund in the university context because it was so radically interdisciplinary that would cross over philosophy and the social sciences and neuroscience and medicine and so many other things that we care about. And it would create a place where we could train students, where we could create a new breed of postdoc who are comfortable working across disciplines in that dramatic way and where we could make a difference in research as well. So that was the vision and that's how we got started. And it's changed over years, but that's a very precious story. And if you were to talk to Patrick McNamara at some point, he'd probably be able to identify where that spot was. We had that original conversation better than I could because he knew the building better than I did, but I've not been able to find it since.
0: What kind of research are you doing, though, that requires, say, a neuroscientist and a philosopher of religion to get together? Like, what sorts of problems actually require both of those people? I would imagine for our listeners, when they think about those things, they, they don't seem at all interrelated.
1: I agree. Neuroscience and philosophy don't seem that interrelated on the surface. The same is true for sociology, mathematics, and computer science, and data science, and the other sorts of things that we have experts in at the Centre for Mind and Culture. Everything in a university sits in its own little compartment, usually called a department or a school or something, and people in those areas seem quite happy working on their own problems without interacting. But the sorts of problems that matter most to regular people usually require input from lots of different corners. So the, one of the early projects we worked on is a good example. There are people who suffer from Parkinson's disease, which is one of Patrick's specialties. And these Parkinson's disease sufferers experience things that go beyond the usual motor problems that people with Parkinson's disease suffer. Those motor problems are associated with loss of dopamine neurons that regulate motor activity, and it's a very frightening thing to feel as though your body is moving in ways that you can't completely control. But the thing is, those very same dopamine neurons are implicated in religious experience, in the understanding of yourself, where you get comfort when you're feeling frightened and need some resource. Patrick discovered that people with a particular version of Parkinson's disease were particularly likely to lose touch with the very comforting resources that they would rely on to help themselves manage what's a very frightening disease process. So already we've got a kind of pastoral aspect in there and we've certainly got a philosophical or religious studies type of aspect because we're talking about people's access to the religious experiences and their beliefs and the sorts of things that could be helpful. We've also got sociological questions about how you get the word out about this, how information about this spreads. And there are educational features for medical school. People learn about Parkinson's disease, but they usually learn about it as a motor disorder. They don't usually learn about it as something that changes the way people process emotions or how they access the comforting religious thoughts and feelings that are so important to them when it comes to coping with something difficult. So that's just That's just one of a thousand examples where it turns out we need to be pretty aggressive in working across disciplines in order to come to terms with the real problems that people are facing and that we try to tackle.
0: You mentioned there, say, what med school students might learn about something like Parkinson's. And if we think of a diagnostic approach, which is this is a disease and it has these kinds of debilitating effects on this kind of person, it would seem that that kind of description is is absent of the emotional, subjective experience of that person. And so if you were to gain a fuller understanding of the disease itself, it would actually mean enlarging the scope of what you're looking at to encompass more than, say, the degeneration of their body parts in particular ways.
1: That's correct. The left-onset Parkinson's is when the left side of your body starts shaking first, right onset Parkinson's is the opposite, but the left side of the body is controlled by the right side of the brain. So when the left side of the body starts shaking first, it's the right side of the brain that's experiencing the toughest time getting those dopamine neurons to work properly. And that right side of the brain is also critical in a circuitry that processes emotion and access to religious experiences and beliefs that would be comforting. So, There's a neurological story to tell that can connect up the physical aspects of Parkinson's disease in terms of body movements with the emotional and spiritual aspects of Parkinson's disease. As that story becomes better known, it will make it into medical textbooks and people being trained in Parkinson's, specialized Parkinson's labs, for example, they will know that and they'll know to ask questions. If someone shows up with left onset Parkinson's disease, they'll know that it's likely that they're going to have very important emotional changes that will endanger their ability to cope with the disease. And the word will spread, and eventually it'll make it into curricula for medical doctors. And the very first time they hear about Parkinson's disease, they won't just hear about a motor disorder. They'll also hear about an emotion and a spiritual disorder.
0: Much earlier, you had mentioned that part of the Center for Mind and Culture's mission is not simply to say have researchers and professors like yourself to look at these issues, but also to educate more graduate students and doctoral fellows, postdocs in looking at these sorts of things as well. So if you're to, to imagine the kind of person that you would hope would come out of the Center for Mind and Culture, what kinds of skills would that person have? What would they look like?
1: I love that question, Seth. My answer to that question is one word that needs to be explained, but it's room changer. That's how I picture these people, people like you or people like others who are doing doctoral degrees at a nearby university or people who are postdocs who work with us. I want them to become so comfortable working across disciplines that when you put them in a room dealing with a complex subject, they're really unafraid of not knowing everything and are unafraid of working across disciplines and they have very serious skills in more disciplines than their home discipline. So they change the whole tone of the room. They make it possible for a room full of experts who might be struggling for a solution suddenly to become much more efficient and to work in a more concerted, coordinated way towards new insights. Now, I've seen this over and over again, putting people like that, trained in that way, into a room makes everyone else around them so much better and it makes the whole team productive. Of course, that's only going to work if these people also know how to work on teams. So training them in teamwork, how to lead teams, how to operate in a team is also really critical and we work on both of those things. I think the
0: teamwork angle might be even more radical than you're framing it here. You're talking about it as if it's something that's completely normal. But as someone who's getting a humanities PhD in theology, almost all of my work is done alone unless I'm deliberately working on a project with other people. So for someone who's in the humanities like yourself, how did you get involved with these team based approaches? It, It would seem to be a kind of a foreign concept, not something that most people would seek out.
1: That's fair. I think in the humanities, people are used to working with obscure books or stretches of history or in library archives uh, by themselves for a lot of the day. They're trying to master very complicated data sets and interpret them. And very often there isn't even a data set by working speculatively to construct a theory that's capable of making sense of a rich swathe of experience. And it's often totally solitary until you present the results to other people and get feedback and maybe refine your thoughts. But there are so many problems in the world that can't be handled that way. They just can't be handled in a solitary, do-it-by-yourself way for the simple reason that it's not possible for any single individual to know enough. You can't know enough disciplines or be expert enough in enough disciplines, even if you know something about them, to be able to make a leading-edge quality of contribution to a problem. Therefore, you're going to have to work on teams. Now, the sciences, they completely used to that, and there are lots of spots in the humanities where you do see interdisciplinary work, but it's not common for humanities people to learn teamwork. It's a whole set of skills. It's a different way of thinking about research, publication, fundraising. It's a real cultural shift. And I've tried to train humanities scholars in such a way that they can both operate by themselves in isolation and on teams so that they're flexible. They can look for different kinds of employment and they can be much more useful on a variety of research topics than would have been the case otherwise.
0: If I was going to go talk to, say, someone in my cohort about this type of thing... Again, someone who's studying theology or philosophy and tell them, hey, why don't you go over and work with someone in the computer science department or someone who's doing engineering about about something that's bothering them and that both of you could equally benefit from that? I imagine for both my friend who's in the cohort and also for the prospective engineer, there'd be a kind of mutual suspicion there that anything could actually happen from bringing those two kinds of people together to re- reveal a bit of my hand here both of us work with the computing and and data science uh, I know it's not a department the division but whatever the right noun is that goes with what it, CDS is right now once we were in the room it was really clear that there was immense value that we could provide to what was going on but prior to us being there it was kind of like oh but those you know those humanities people in their arcane books and texts that are chained to the wall, or, right? Like there's this, this complete misunderstanding of actually what happens in different kinds of departments.
1: This vulcanization of university departments is a problem that's clearly recognized by a lot of university administrators. And the reason why they see it is especially because they recognize that the kinds of problems that they're trying to solve, that they really like to solve in the universities don't fall under the property of any particular department. So they wind up creating these combo clusters, uh, biomedical engineering, for example, with biologists and engineers and medical doctors and often neuroscientists all working together on particular problems. Well, that makes perfect sense, but those collaborations across different sciences are very easy to picture compared with collaborations between the sciences and the humanities. Humanist scholars often work together as well. For example, religion scholars will work with political science scholars and historians on particular issues. So within the humanities, it's quite possible to do good teamwork, good collaboration across disciplines also. So the real problem is when you try and put the humanities and the sciences together. Strangely enough, then, when you actually get to the point of facing problems where both humanities and science people can make contributions. It's stunning how quickly people see that it's important. You'd think it would be hard to make out that it doesn't exist very often, this dramatic multidisciplinary research, so it'll be a bit of a stretch. But no, it just happens so naturally and so easily. Moreover, engineers working with humanities people, us, have told us that working with us has just changed their perspective on everything that they do. It's been dramatically life transforming for them to experience the depth of knowledge that humanities people have. Now they can bring that to bear when they're building computational models of social systems, because those humanities people, they understand human beings really well, and that can be built into those systems to some extent. I think Plenty of humanities people I've talked to have had the same reaction as those engineers. They did not realise that there were methods in the engineering world that could help them clarify their philosophical or humanities theory so that they would come away from the interaction experience understanding their own theory better than they did going in. But we constantly hear people on both sides saying, why aren't we doing this more often? It's so obvious and it's so powerful. To my way of thinking, Seth, this is the fundamental answer to the problem of the humanities in the contemporary university. The humanities are so useful, but they don't usually think of themselves as useful for other people. If they could demonstrate that usefulness, then everyone's work would get better. And then the humanities would be understood to be critical components, not just for the cultivation of young minds, but also for conducting research in engineering computer science, and so many other domains of university research.
0: If I think about my own experience with this, uh, again, here at Boston University, even as far back as my undergraduate education, I, I would think that some of the pushback that I would get on this is that it's okay for someone like me to do this, that there's something about, say, me or the other people who are in the Center for Mind and Culture that allows them to bridge this kind of a gap, but that they themselves can't go through that process of communicating their specialty. They just wouldn't know where to start. And so what would you say to people like that? How might you encourage them to start to branch out? Because I think it's not just that it's unclear at the start what the benefits might be, but there's also, again, because I'm in the humanities, I see this anxiousness all the time of, I, I just don't know what I could contribute. It's, it's almost there's a, a self-defeating circle that happens within people's minds.
1: I don't think everyone needs to do this. Mm-hmm. There's tons of work for an historian or a philosopher to do just within their own field. And building up the web of knowledge in those fields is valuable, intrinsically valuable. And this is why we love the humanities because of the, the intricate, hermeneutically structured webs of knowledge that we can build. And it's extraordinary what we do. So beautiful. I don't want that to stop. So I don't think it's necessary for people to figure out how to do this, but often enough, a humanities scholar will be chatting with me, another humanities scholar, and they will say to me, there's this thing I'm thinking about at the moment, you know, it's the sort of thing that really could make a difference in the world. For example, I have a dear friend who was speaking to me not long ago about liberation theology, the whole concept of prioritising the liberation of people in theological interpretation and research, which is something I love. It's very important to me. Somewhere during that conversation, this person said to me, this is revolutionary stuff. It can change the way the world works. And I asked the very simple question in return, Spell it out for me. What's the theory of change? Explain to me how it is that research and liberation theology is supposed to change the prospects of real people in the world. That's a very challenging question. And all humanities people who want to have some type of impact, who want to solve some type of real world problem, and that's not all of them, but the ones who do, need to ask themselves that question about impact. They need to be able to identify the theory of change that links the good ideas that they have and the power of those ideas to change people and people's minds to actual processes of change that they can articulate. And it's not just a matter of PR, I was working with communications experts to get your message out. It's very often a matter of trying to think about things like economies. How do you transform an economy? Or questions about, people's biases or prejudices how do you challenge those and that means you're talking already to economists and cognitive scientists and there's a million other elements to making an emphasis on liberation in theology effective in the world and there are experts who know about the various aspects of those things so any theory of change is necessarily going to involve a lot of other people so bottom line To the extent that people care about making a difference in the world and solving real world problems, they are going to need to master these skills of collaborating with others. Otherwise, the humanities is just going to be amusing themselves, essentially, with their beautiful worlds, but not having the kind of impact that they really long to have.
0: I know that we together had a whole year-long course on scientific methods, learning different kinds of scientific theories. And you know, as I've been in the process of putting together my dissertation proposal, one of the things that kept coming to mind is, well, how would I know that I was right? Like, what sorts of things would I see in the world about my own theory to, to explain what it is that's going on? So I know just from being around these kinds of methods, it's been personally influential to me, even in terms of the ways that I think that a traditional humanities scholar may not always always go for. And I think that there is lots of benefit towards learning different kinds of, of methods of really branching out. But I also recognize that it's extraordinarily challenging. You know, One of the things that you mentioned earlier is that you need teams because you can't specialize in everything. But in order to have a team, you have to develop a kind of common language to talk to other people between teams, which seems to go against the humanity's inclination to, to develop specialized terminology, let's say, and to use those specialized terms in really delimited ways to to make sure that you get your point across exactly. Whereas it it seems to be a completely different process to to go through translation of, of everything that you know to
1: someone who may not have that same background. In practice, the problem of everyone having their own specialized discourses isn't that difficult to solve in my experience. Starts out looking terribly difficult, Because how is a philosopher supposed to take the wealth of technical distinctions and carefully defined terms that they operate with into a conversation with an engineer who has a completely different set of skills and type of expertise? Maybe the conversation looks like it would be completely intractable. These are untranslatable languages. So you've got an incommensurable situation and it's going to all end in tears. That's what it looks like at the start. But in practice, there's a lot of mutability because you've got to have the right people. If I, as a philosopher of religion, am not interested in learning from an engineer about their perspective, then there won't be any merging of languages at all. And if an engineer is dismissive of my insights, then they too are blocking a process of change that could be genuinely transformative. But we get pretty good at telling who can do that and who can't. We try and put in the room just the people who are going to be able to do it. And when you do, man, it is a completely different proposition. It turns out that these people can communicate beautifully with one another across disciplines. Now, they're going to sometimes invoke ideas that the other group's not going to understand, but they can explain those ideas. And sometimes I've got a distinction that comes straight from epistemology or ontology or something, and I want to introduce that into a conversation, and I've I've immediately got a challenge on my hands. How am I going to say that in a way that my engineering or sociology or political science friends are really going to grasp? And it turns out these people are really smart. They can grasp my distinction so long as I'm not stupid about the way I explain them. So there is really the emergence of a shared language, it's not a universal language, it's not a pidgin language, it's a custom language that develops for the specific task, for the specific problem that you're trying to solve, that language is effective for that problem. Now, you might not be able to generalise it. it, probably depends on those people. You couldn't turn it into some giant massive meta language for everyone to use across I don't think that sort of thing exists not by a long shot but for the purposes of solving specific problems you can actually communicate well enough to make advances.
0: I think this would be a good point to turn a little bit to something that's trying to do that so the competing in data sciences that I had mentioned earlier it, it would seem that that's a new attempt to forge say at least a kind of environment in which these kinds of languages might develop and in which you might be able to look at different kinds of problems it's it's a big university initiative and it's one I'm really excited about so could you tell us a little bit more about cds and about how you got involved with it
1: the faculty of computing and data sciences is a new concept in the university it's not a university unit like the other units. It's one that actually arcs across all of the units of the university, So the Medical School, School of Public Health, the School of Theology, the College of Arts and Sciences, Engineering, and every other part, it's supposed to be connecting to computing and data sciences. That's a fascinating idea. It's one thing for a university to say, We believe in multidisciplinary research and solving problems that arc across disciplines and interfering with the balkanization of university disciplines while maintaining disciplinary integrity and skills, right? You can say that as much as you want, but how are you supposed to actually make that happen? Particularly in relation to computing and data sciences, whose methods are so flexible and are proving to be so useful in every part of the university. So Boston University's solution has been to build a new faculty that's going to include people who do work across disciplines. So it's not just a new computer science department. It's not just a new electrical and computer engineering department. It's not just a new math stats department. No, it's something brand new. And it's got this policy of picturing the research done there in one of two ways, both of which are understood to be completely legitimate. One is data science plus X, where X is some other discipline. So this is when you've got someone who's expert in data science skills applying data science to something they care about, such as economics or game theoretic approaches to trying to have better voting mechanisms or a million other things. You can also have X plus data science. This is where someone from a field approaches data sciences looking for skills to help them solve problems in their field. So, for example, someone from earth sciences might say, I've got this complicated problem, there's a massive amount of data, how do I approach it? Or someone from sociology says, I've got these social networks, how am I supposed to analyse them? So either in the data science plus X form or in the X plus data science form, You've got aggressively multidisciplinary research and the whole point of the Faculty of Computing and Data Sciences is to pull together faculty in the university who operate in that way instinctively and have a record of publication and achievement in that way. They become the core faculty and then we hire new faculty who also operate in that way and gradually build up a faculty that's able to create a new culture. It doesn't look like a computer science department. It looks like a computing and data sciences department that's reaching out to every part of the university. To show you how serious Boston University is about that, they're building the Centre for Computing and Data Sciences, which is an 18-storey building in the heart of the Boston University campus, a really innovative design, and it's got the promise of uniting so many different research activities and teaching activities within the university that it's tremendously exciting.
0: It would seem to me that CDS, in part, seems to be an outgrowth of things that had already been happening. So, for instance, there was the Law and Algorithms course that was actually taught out of the law school, which was responsive to this real question of, we have these these tech companies and there are lawsuits involved, you know, there's different kinds of compliance and regulations. And so... As a kind of a natural outgrowth of the sorts of problems that the students were running into, it was only responsible to have a class that was catered towards both those people, both towards the law professionals and towards the computer science students who were going to be working at these companies in the future. And so it it would seem that, especially given the topic, something like data that does reach across things and data can be in anything, it doesn't refer to a specific kind of thing. That it would be necessary to create a context in which people can actually start to collaborate on these issues.
1: One of the parts of Boston University that's been so deeply involved in interdisciplinary collaboration across disciplines, but involving computing and data sciences, has been the Hariri Institute. It's been there for quite a few years, and the original director of the Hariri Institute is now the associate provost with responsibility for running the faculty. Of computing and data sciences, that's as her best of us. Um, this Hariri Institute is now being run by someone else, Eric Kalachi, who's um, equally amazing in terms of his understanding of problems taking shape across disciplines. And the leadership of the Hariri Institute has been reflected in its programs, in its funding initiatives, in the young scholars it's brought on and the more senior scholars, the the research trajectories that it's tried to sponsor, the lecture series that it gives. It's been incredible. And the fact that it's existed, I think, was one of the main reasons that the university was really convinced that the faculty of computing and data sciences was the right way to go. So in a certain way, I think the birth of the Faculty of Computing and Data Sciences came from the university administration's vision and from the existence of the Hariri Institute and other university projects that were already demonstrating the value of this type of radical multidisciplinarity.
0: Part of what we had a chance to work on with CDS was specifically on ethics and ethics content. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how does ethics play into this in a way that's say more than just about maintaining the boundaries of legal regulations of some kind or of being a good coder. But I think this is where we start to get into those humanities oriented questions of what does it mean to be a good person within this domain and On the face of it, that seems to be a very abstract problem to try to apply to, say, again, a computer science department of some kind. So why do you think that that question is coming up to the surface here in regards to computing and and data sciences? And what do you think that we can do about it?
1: If you work in the professions outside of universities in computing and data sciences pretty much anywhere, you only need to be in the job a week before you see an ethical question arise. As we work with Bernd Dervector on producing materials for training people in the computing and data science professions, we've generated dozens of case studies, real world situations, which are really just the tip of the iceberg because there are a thousand questions coming up all the time. How do I deal with this data? There's a confidentiality issue there's uh, an analysis issue and there's a question about whether I should choose just a subset of the data to analyse or do the whole data set even if the result's not quite as strong as it would be otherwise. There's millions of questions like that all the time. And then when you're writing algorithms to guide machine learning applications, which are a dime a dozen these days, there's real questions about the fairness of those algorithms. And there's real questions about whether you've got the right people even in place to assess fairness. How would you even tell if something was fair? It's not just some simple assessment. There are real questions to be asked about who's making those assessments, who has power, who's interested in protecting power and so on. Really, you can't even open your eyes in one of these large computer-oriented corporations without seeing a hundred different ethical questions. So it's really not a question of how the issue arises. It's more a question of how we've been able to go so long without having a formal discussion of ethics in relation to computing and data sciences. Now, fortunately, computer science departments have gotten pretty good at offering courses in ethics and computing and data sciences. But what we're trying to do in the Faculty of Computing Data Sciences in every degree program, in every certificate program, and in fact, in every single individual course is to ensure that the relevant ethics issues come up so that there's no isolation between the technical training or the applied training that students get and the discussion of ethical questions that are so proximate to the problems that they deal with when they apply their training.
0: That sounds great in terms of preparing students by looking back at past case studies, other things that have already come up. But it would seem to me that part of the problem is that whatever sorts of ethical issues might come up in the future, those things may be related to technologies and algorithms that don't even exist yet. So, so kinds of ways of approaching problem that we can't even foresee. So how is it that we go about actually preparing people to go out into the real world for unknown issues of unknown
1: proportions. I hate to boost my own specialization, but philosophy really helps at moments like this. Philosophy gives you a way of identifying principles that are more general than specific case studies. They can be derived empirically from case studies, but they can be formalized as well. Formalized and given conceptual foundations, somewhat independent of case studies, so that those very same principles can be applied to new situations that have not yet arrived on the thing. And you're right, they will arrive, new situations will arrive. In fact, new principles will be needed as well. So it's not like philosophers can just sit down and figure out the ethics issues that are gonna come up and end it there. The discussion will go on. So I think we need philosophical ethics and computing and data sciences to stay in touch with one another and with relevant disciplines such as law, so that we can figure out not only what's really happening now and what the relevant principles are, but also what's going to happen in the future to the extent that we can anticipate it and be ready for it.
0: To to transition a little bit away from just the university environment, I want to maybe finish up our time by talking a little bit about this podcast itself. From your perspective, why should the public be interested in things like digital ethics beyond just the people who work on these things or who are affected by these things? Why would it be important to kind of enlarge that conversation beyond what happens at a university?
1: The Center for Mind and Culture is blessed with a threefold mission. Part of it is research and part of it is training. And we've talked about both of those in our discussion today. But another part is outreach. The outreach side of our mission inevitably involves communicating research findings, but there's more to it than that. We're also trying to create within the general public a new way of thinking about universities and research and training. That new way of thinking is that universities can solve problems. University experts outside of universities can solve problems. We can work together on this. And I want the general public to expect veterans of research to be doing useful things that can make the world better. That expectation can be cultivated through these outreach efforts. That's one side of it. The other side is that regular people are affected by all sorts of pieces of research that we ourselves are involved in and that universities are involved in. Um, just think about um, maternal mortality projects the fact that the united states has developing nation levels of mothers dying in childbirth or in a few months afterwards for certain subsets of women in the united states is a very serious message if you happen to be one of those sorts of women african american women native american women especially then you've got a legit concern seriously having a baby is as dangerous for me here in the United States as it is in third world countries. It's hard to stomach, but it's true. That's a miserable situation. So anyone who cares about those people or those people themselves, they've got something at stake in solving that problem, understanding why it happens and reversing it. Now that's true for that problem and a thousand other problems like it. And it's true for the ethics of computing and data sciences and digital activities in our culture. When you go to apply for a loan, there is a machine learning algorithm that's assisting a loan officer to decide whether or not you should get it. How the heck does that machine learning algorithm work? Is anyone checking out to see whether that machine learning algorithm is biased? Is that going to affect negatively me or people I know that I care about or If I'm just a general good citizen I care about justice, I could be super concerned about something like that. And again, it's that times a thousand in the domain of digital technologies in our world. So rather than just giving a litany of examples, I should probably just leave it there. Everyone has something at stake in this. And the DigEthics podcast is supposed to create in its listeners, an expectation that universities and experts in computing and data sciences are going to be sophisticated and responsible in their ethical approach to these sorts of challenges?
0: To me, it would seem that there are two parts to what you're describing. The first part is the actual communication of what's going on. So if you have research that needs to be communicated, getting it out there in a way that's accessible, that people can understand, would be... At least one aspect of that. But the second aspect, which I think is equally important, and I'd really love to get your thoughts on this, especially because it may be peculiarly American, is the distrust between the general public and between experts, especially at this point in time. And so when we go to talk about these things, there seems to be suspicion, perhaps, or... I'm not even sure where that distrust comes from necessarily, but it's certainly there.
1: The distrust of Americans on average towards the major institutions of their society is as high now as it's been in many decades. If you happen to be in a university, it's tough, feeling as though you really care about all of the people who can benefit from your research, but discovering from surveys that you're trusted very little just at the moment. That's a big problem. It's a very serious problem because people in universities actually do have something to offer. People who have expertise in computing and data sciences really can solve problems. And yet I think they've earned the distrust. They've earned the distrust that they're facing because they haven't taken the time to explain what they're doing to the general public in such a way as to earn their trust. Why should any intelligent person in the general public trust an expert just because they've got some letters after their name if they can't explain why it is that this issue is important or why it is that the expert perspective can help them understand their life and have better control over it? Well, any smart person is just not going to trust an expert if they've been condescending and pronouncing things without taking the time to explain them first. So this is a critical reason why the Center for Mine and Culture continues to emphasize the importance of public communication. And we try to do that in everything, trying to build back trust, trying to help people understand that there are ways of telling when people are giving you the straight story. And a lot of it has to do with whether you can just understand them or not.
0: Hmm. I I definitely think that that's true. In fact, one of the Best feedback that I got on one of my exams was actually that I didn't use a lot of jargon, which I was really happy to see. And I think that actually has a lot to do with because I'm in a very niche kind of narrow field. I have to spend a lot of time explaining what I do to other people. But that's also been really invaluable in developing the skills that are necessary to do that. And I I think that sometimes that can escape us if we're always around people within our own sort of specialty. As we kind of get to the end of our time here, though, I, I was wondering, if, is there a light at the end of the tunnel for this sort of thing? Do you imagine that this will start to get better? Uh, how do you kind of think that this process will play out?
1: I think the public is going to regain its trust in expertise, but it's not going to happen quickly and it's only going to happen if universities start training their graduate students and their faculty in public communication i've tried to do that by teaching my PhD students and sometimes master's students as well, how to write blogs, how to write opinion pieces and how to communicate to the general public through things like being interviewed on blogs with you or other things like that. But everyone needs to be doing that and it needs to start pretty early. I think as soon as someone arrives in a graduate program, it'd be better if it started with undergraduates as well. But at least when people come to graduate school, They should be expecting to learn that they're going to have to communicate what they know and what they're expert into other people without condescension, without underestimating the intelligence of their audience and without pretending that it's futile for them really to get into details. I don't think it is futile. I think people are engaged by those details. The problem is a communication problem. It's a problem that can be solved. And as universities focus on solving that problem supported by organizations like ours, the situation will change, the tide will turn and people's confidence in the value of research and of expertise will pick up again. Things like this podcast are going to make a big difference in that regard, I believe.
0: Well, I certainly hope so. I think that that's really important to me, especially you know, considering my own background. I think it's really important that we're able to communicate what we do here in a way that makes sense to people and that also can, say, be responsive to people's intuitions about things, the kinds of questions that they have. And I hope that overall Digethics can really become the place in which that actually happens.
1: Well, more power to you. I certainly agree with those sentiments, and I wish you all the best.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Dr. Wesley Wildman. You can find more information about Digethics on our website, digethics.org and more information about our sponsoring organization, the Center for Mind and Culture at mindandculture.org. If you'd like to respond to this episode, you can email us at digethics at You can also find this information in the description for this episode. In this episode, we spoke about Wesley's unique background and about how he developed a passion for interdisciplinary projects. Wesley now trains researchers to work across boundaries in order to solve real world problems. He gives several examples of what this can look like such as computational models of complex social problems that require many different kinds of expertise to make sense of. This approach to education and to research is quite novel, one that we hope can become better embraced. He hopes to build a generation of scholars who can tackle issues that go beyond merely just the science or the technology involved, such as the kinds that we talk about here on DigEthics. If we are successful in generating that kind of researcher in the future, the kind of person who has the skills to communicate their expertise, then perhaps we can come to a better consensus of how to start to answer the questions that we have with digital ethics today. While we may not have all the answers that we want yet, we hope that the Faculty of Computing and Data Sciences at Boston University and the Digi-Ethics Podcast can both act as contexts in which those answers might be developed. I hope to hear from you before our next conversation. This is Seth signing off.